All right, the book of Philippians, and we've been doing a little thing where we started out with Galatians and then Ephesians, and I've given you some truths out of each of the chapters of there. These are short books. The book of Philippians has four chapters, and you can probably guess that Colossians will be coming next because it's the next book. There's four little books that are kind of sandwiched together. They're epistles. That's, that's a fancy word for a letter. One guy said he thought an epistle was an apostle's wife. But that ain't what it is. It's a letter is what it is. And, so, and the Apostle Paul wrote all these by inspiration of the Holy Ghost. In other words, God had him write it, but God told him what to write. And in here you got four little chapters. And just think about this. We sit here and we look at these and say, well, yeah, the book of Philippians, that's good. A little four, he says it's got four chapters and it's a letter that Paul wrote. I guess to these people in Philippi, they call Philippians, and that's neat and all. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote this? Mamertime prison in Rome in a prison cell. And I've got pictures of that I showed in our Bible Institute on our screens. And it's still there. And I mean, you can see where he would have been chained up and sitting there or whatever. And you know why he was in prison? He didn't do anything wrong. You say, what did he do? Well, he did do something wrong. He was preaching the Word of God. And they considered that to be wrong. And that might have been wrong in man's eyes, but it wasn't wrong in God's eyes. And so you think about that. Here's a guy in prison, wrote this letter, and the average Christian doesn't even read stuff like this. And here's a guy that was dying, and, and he knew when he wrote this, he was waiting to get his head cut off. And he's writing these things, and he's still upbeat and praising the Lord for what he's doing. So we ought to consider that stuff. But notice there are several things in this, and this book of Philippians, it has a great theme, and it's joy and rejoicing. How could a guy that's about to die have joy and rejoicing? Well, the reason he did is because of who he knew and who he does know. He knows the Lord is his Savior. And so it's hard for a person as they come to the end of their life if they don't know Christ as their Savior because the next step's no good. You will spend eternity somewhere. And you better go ahead and get that taken care of and get it fixed. That's more important than anything we do in life is knowing where we're going when we die. Because you're only here for a short time. Eternity is forever. You say, well, I might live to be 80, 90, 100. What's that in eternity? It's nothing. Nothing. But anyway, it's a great thing here. And notice in Philippians chapter 1, there's several things. I want you to notice verse number 6. Philippians 1, 6. In some of these chapters, I had a trouble just coming up with one because they're so loaded, so loaded. Notice verse 6. Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice he's confident of this. And what a blessing that is. Paul said, I'm confident of some things. And this is one of the greatest verses on eternal security in the Bible. There's many of them. I've given you a whole lot of them. We've got lessons all over YouTube and Sermon Audio and other places, other uh, platforms, whatever they may be. And anyway, and people share these things, and that's good. We, we, get, we actually get letters from people often from time to time. We get letters from places and emails from people around the world that are watching our videos and thanking us for putting them on, and, and that's a blessing. But we want to give them something that they can learn that they can get a hold of. And one thing you ought to be able to get a hold of is once you're saved, you're always saved. Look at this, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not 
me working for the Lord, it's Him working in me. It's just the opposite is what it is. And notice this work here he talks about. And Paul had great confidence. He knew where he was going when he died. But notice it's a good work. He said, I'm confident that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a good work. The reason it's a good work is because it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that's doing the work. It's God's work. God's work is always a good work, by the way. And it's not like, it's not the same thing as us serving him, but that is God's work. And we ought to be thankful for that and thankful for that opportunity. But the truth is, uh, he's doing a greater work than we're doing. And it's a more important work than we're doing. But we ought to be thankful the work we're doing is great. I'll never leave church and drive out of the parking lot and say, I just feel dirty and filthy for going there. <laughs> but you know what? There's other places I've been that I felt that way before. But I've never felt that way at church. I never left church with a bad conscience and saying, I really probably shouldn't have been there. That's probably something I shouldn't have been doing. No, you don't leave church like that. You leave church with a good conscience saying, you know what? I did the right thing tonight. I got in my car, brought my family, came to church, learned about, we sang about the Lord, we learned about the Bible, and here we are now, and it's a good thing. It really is a good thing. And so there's a good work. God's work's a good work. It's good work to be involved in. We was talking about Sunday evening, we're going to have, we need our church to work, we're going to try to get everybody here and work. we got to work. You know what it is? It's a good work is what it is. It's a good thing to be involved in. And we don't do stuff like that all the time, and, and we don't push people to work. I mean, just constantly around church for, for every little thing. But sometimes it, we got to come together and roll our sleeves up and get after it. And this is one of these weeks we got to do it. It's a big deal. But it's a good work. It's work of the Holy Spirit. But it's more than that. It's an inner work. Look what he said. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. The work is in you. It's not you doing the work, but he is doing the work in you. You say, who's the he? The Holy Spirit. By the way, he's a person too. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three parts to God, a trinity. And he's doing a work inside of you. And it's a very, very important work. Very important. And we ought to be thankful that he's doing that work, and we've got to have him, and we need him. And then, he, and then thirdly, it's a guaranteed work. Being confident of this very thing. Confident. It's guaranteed. He said, one thing I have, he said, I may not have confidence in myself, but I got confidence in the work that the Holy Spirit's doing. We got confidence in him. So many churches try to build churches outside of the Holy Spirit. We can do things and enjoy things. We can have fun and do things in the community, trunk or treat, whatever it may be, and that's good and that's fun, but that's really not what builds a church. That's part of serving your community and and having a good time and fellowshipping together and those kind of things. That's really good to fellowship together. But the truth is, that's not what builds a church. You say, what builds a church? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and God Himself. That's what builds a church. It's the Lord that builds a church. It's a spiritual work. And Paul had great confidence because it was a guaranteed work. So that's a great verse in your Bible. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, until the day of Jesus Christ. That's how long he said he'd perform it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Brother Leon Harvey always said that's long enough for me. <laughs> I like that. He's right. Then look in verse 21. This, this chapter here is so loaded. We, 
I'm not even touching the surface of it, but I'm going to give you another verse. And here's a verse that people don't pay a lot of attention to, but we should. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What a great verse in the Bible. Every Christian ought to realize that the real life is in Christ. If you're not living for Christ, you're not really living. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Um, we think about sports, which are I, I enjoy sports, but to be honest with you, they don't take the place of Christ. But they're enjoyable. They're still enjoyable, there's, and there's nothing wrong with having enjoyable things. Deer hunting, that's enjoyable, but you don't take the place of me coming to church. Man, I mean, that's not even close to the same. You take, um, you go all the, down the list, you, all kinds of things, going on vacations and trips and things. That's nice sometimes, but it's also, I'm at the point right now, it's nice to be at home. That's <laughs> why it's really nice. If I see another big city this year, I'm sick of them. Um, you about sick of them, Brother Robbie? <laughs> yeah. We've been through a bunch of them, and anyway, and that's fine, but man, I like little bitty towns like this one right here in this area. It's, Jonesboro's too big for me. I was over in Jonesboro uh, yesterday, and I thought, man, I'm going to get out of here, get back out of here. But anyway, to live is Christ. And then something else, and he says, and to die is gain. As far as a Christian's concerned, you're better off dead. You say, what? That's what he said. you got to gain. There's more over there for us than there is down here is what it's saying. For a Christian, death is a promotion. Now that's hard to understand because we have a will to live. God gives us a will to live. So well, I don't care whether I live or not. Well, then quit eating. Why do you eat then? I really love to live. Because <laughs> I like to eat. I enjoy it. I like good food. Nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, if a person didn't want to live, all they'd have to do is stop eating. You stop eating, you won't live. You'll eventually be done. It'll be over with. Don't drink any water or anything. Just quit. Just drop that if you don't like to live. But you can't do it. God puts a will inside of us to live. We're supposed to have that will in us. But the truth is, even though we have a will, we're not trying to die prematurely. We know that for a Christian, it's gain to die. It's a promotion to die. It's better. It's going to be so much better. And by the way, there's no such thing as soul sleep when you die. These people say, oh, when you die, you're dead like Rover. You're dead all over. You just stay down there and you don't know anything. No, that's your body that goes down there. Your spirit is with the Lord. I had a guy call me out of town yesterday, and he said he ran into a preacher of a different faith. And it makes no difference which one it is. But anyway, he said... Um, he said, that preacher told him, he said, oh, you Baptist. He said, you don't understand. He said, you don't even go to heaven when you die. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you go to Hades. Everybody goes to Hades. And, I, and he said, what do you say to a guy like that? Well, I said, well, number one, he couldn't hold a Bible right side up. And what he said was, he said, Luke 16, he said, you got two sides of Hades. You got the bad side and the good side, and they're down there together. You got hell and you got paradise, and that's where everybody goes. I said, he's not smart enough to know that's the Old Testament. That's not now. And the people in the Old Testament might have gone to a place, and it wasn't even called Hades, by the way. But anyway, um, they had to change their Bible to get that. But anyway, you go down there, and, they, and the people in the Old Testament might have gone there. 
But in the New Testament, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Lord is in heaven. And I said, I guess he forgot that scripture in John 14 where it says, the Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you. He did. And he's gone and he did it. And I said, I guess he forgot in Ephesians 4 when he took captivity captive, those people that were down in paradise took them with him, took them up into heaven. Their body's in a grave somewhere. But your loved one is not down in some place, in some holding cell or purgatory. And these weren't Catholic people, and that's what they teach, but they're Southern Catholics, so it's about the same thing. And anyway, and there's no, I mean, purgatory, you can spell purgatory two ways, P-U-R-G-A-T-O-R-Y or B-A-L-O-N-E-Y, because <laughs> they're about the same thing. There's no such thing. And so they, in being way, they, that's the mess that they get into. We got loved ones that's already gone on. You say, where are they? They're in heavens where they're at. They're in heaven. They're with the Lord's where they're at. But see, that's what you get into. All right. How is it that the Lord, when he comes back in First Thessalonians 4, we've been studying the rapture in my young adult class, how is it when he comes back that he's bringing them with him? He's bringing those people with him is what the bible says you say where is he at he's seated on the right hand of the father is what the scripture says how's he bringing those that are already sleeping in him with him in the air and we're going to meet them in the air if they're down in the middle of the earth in a holding cell that doesn't make any sense it's not biblical all right enough of that i get calls all the time sometimes i need calls like that. it gets me fired up all right philippians chapter 2 <laughs> Philippians 2. Here's some good stuff. How about verses 5, 6, 7, and 8? In here we see the seven downward steps our Lord took from the throne to the cross. You realize he started up in the throne. He started at the, um, in heaven. And he came down in his virgin board. He had to come down to get to where we are. He says, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You say, what's his seven downward steps? Well, the first one is verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. You realize he's the creator of the universe, right? He had a re quite the reputation. He had to make himself of no reputation. You say, why did he do that? So he could save me and you. Some kind of savior, isn't he? And then he took on the form of a servant, the second thing. He's not a servant, but he did. He served us. The creator of the universe served the creation. That's amazing to me. I don't think the average person gets it. They say, well, yeah, that, you're right. I, I guess that's true, but they don't really believe it. Man, if, they, if everybody believed that like they ought to believe it, you wouldn't have a, you'd be getting here early to find a seat. Do you realize what he did for you? It's amazing. And then he was made in the likeness of men. That's the third thing. Wow. He came down and made, was made in the likeness of men, made like a man. You say, why? Because in order for you to live, he had to die as a man in a perfect condition. Adam, when he sinned, he, he gave the sin nature to all mankind. 
And so when Adam sinned and did wrong, and his sin was passed down to every person that ever lived, there had to be somebody to step up and not sin. Where Adam failed, he succeeded. And he died on the cross for our sins. And that's the only reason we can go to heaven. And he's called the second Adam. And then the um, fourth thing, he was found in fashion as a man. The fifth thing, he humbled himself. I'd say he did, verse 8, greatly humbled himself. The sixth thing, he became obedient unto death, verse 8. He didn't have to die, but he did. And the seventh thing, even the death of the cross, verse 8, the worst kind of death. He didn't just die, he was tortured. That's something else we forget about. Our Savior was tortured. So I don't know if he was tortured, he got hung on a cross. What do you call it when you strip somebody's clothes off and tie them to a whipping post and whip all their flesh off of them where they can actually see all their bones because their flesh is gone? And then take them and start plucking their beard out and then take them and put a crown of thorns and beat it out on their face and stick through their brow and everything else and then, and then put a robe on, his, on him where he's ripped all the shreds on his back and then take the robe off and it probably pulled everything else off. And then make him carry his own cross after he lost most of his blood. What do you call that? I'd call it torture, wouldn't you? No, but you don't treat anybody like I wouldn't treat a dog like that. But yet they treated our Savior that way. Even the death of the cross. I mean, the electric chair would have been a picnic compared to what he went through. Picnic. And today, I mean, they can't even give people the death penalty that hit a, a girl with their car and, and then do terrible things to her and brutally kill her, he should have been dead before he ever got to the place. I'm, I'm sorry, that's just the way I feel about it. We got perverts out there. Just leave girls alone. Leave them alone. I don't understand why people are that way. And so you have to understand, how can you have a plea deal with a man that does what he did? You know why? Because it would have taken 30 or 40 years to get anything done, and then they'd probably overturned it, and they can't even get the death penalty anymore. And so I don't believe in the death penalty. Well, the Lord's one that instituted it, not me. The Lord did. And that what that guy did down there in Newport, that was a terrible thing. Terrible thing, that pretty little girl. That's sickening. Let me just say something. The Lord went through a whole lot for us. Went through a whole lot for us. Let me say something else. You see in verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. I'm going to say this. He had no reputation of his birth. He's born in a manger. Isn't that something? With animals. They didn't even let him be born in a in a uh, hospital they put him in there with animals that's amazing no reputation of learning he's i mean they said how's this guy teaching he's never even been to school because he knew more than anybody no reputation of independence he said i can't do anything unless my father in heaven you know lets me or tells me had no reputation of father you know what they said they said you was born in fornication because they said, that Joseph, we know he's not really your daddy. Well, they was right about that. But they didn't realize who his daddy was, did they? God was his father. But they made fun of him about it. I often wondered that too. Why would you even make fun of a child because of their parents? They don't have any choice in that. It makes no sense. But people are cruel people, aren't they? No reputation of wealth. 
He was a carpenter's son. He said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man, talking about himself, hath nowhere to lay his head. He said, I don't even have a place to call home. I have nowhere. If you have a house or a home or an apartment or whatever you got where you can go home at night and lay your head down, you had it better than he had it. And he didn't have to do that. He left the splendor of heaven for us. No reputation of success. He died with no clothes, no money, no possessions, no grave, had to borrow that, no wife, no children. As far as the world's eyes were concerned, he was a failure. But he wasn't in God's eyes. And he's not in our eyes either. He's the greatest man to ever live, the greatest person to ever live, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody can compare to him. But the good thing is, you see here, he had some upward steps too. Look in verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a blessing that is. Seven steps down and seven steps up. And I'm not going to go through all those for the sake of time tonight, but, but notice something else right there. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What a name that is, the name of Jesus. You know what it means? It means Jehovah saves. He's our Savior is what he is. Lost men can say God easily, and some can say Christ, but they have trouble saying Jesus, unless they're cussing usually. They don't have any trouble then. I don't understand why anybody would use that name as a cuss word. I'd leave that one alone. It's been said of his name, it's more imperial than Caesar, more eloquent than Cicero, more musical than Beethoven, more beautiful than Cleopatra, and more holy than Mary. It's whispered by children at bedtime. It's called out in the darkness of hospital rooms at night. It's murmured under shell fire on the battlefield. It sounded forth publicly from the pulpits, and it's called upon by the uh, sinful, which tearf uh, uh, wretch tearfully for salvation. The name of Jesus. That's the greatest name that there's ever been. And so we ought to be thankful for his name. And so we come to church, we're here to lift up his name and praise his name, not to bring it down. We're to bring it up and talk about him, how good he is. That's all right. People say, y'all brag on him too much. You know, we don't brag on him enough. It's not possible. It's like having too much fun. Can you really have too much fun? You can't brag on the Lord too much. You sure can't. There's no end to it. Just keep on bragging on it. It'll be all right. All right, then chapter 3. In Philippians 3. And there's so many. <laughs> and there's tons in this. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter number 3, and it says in verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's a great passage there. And one of the hardest things as a Christian is forgetting. 
forgetting those things which are behind. Paul admitted he wasn't perfect. As a matter of fact, he'd lived a wicked life before he was saved. And he didn't realize it at the time. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he was actually doing the wrong thing. And the worst thing that he could have done, he was persecuting Christians and having them murdered. I mean, he was, he was making martyrs out of them. It's a terrible what he was doing. But he thought he was doing it in the Lord's name. You know, there's a lot of religions that way. A lot of religions have done that. I show that video, that Mormon religion, and we show that in our Bible Institute. I've showed it before on a Wednesday night here. And about that lady that let the Mormon church, when she let the Mormon church cry and all that stuff, and she said, I'm telling you, if, I don't, if, if you don't hear from me, they come after me, they killed me, and within days she was dead. I mean, it's just like, oh. Let me say something. If you leave our church, we promise you one thing. We're not going to kill you. <laughs> we don't even want to kill you. And, so, and you're welcome to come back if you leave, okay? We're not like that here. But man, craziness. But I couldn't imagine that. But you know what? They, the, those people that were doing and I'm not saying all Mormons are that way, that group was, but those people that do that, they thought they were doing it in the name of the Lord. They really thought they were doing right is what they thought. And they weren't doing right. It wasn't right. Nowhere in the Bibles that tell you that. You go up there up north in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and some of those places, and you'll see a whole lot of Baptists that died, and you'll see their graves. They're martyrs for their faith. When they first came over to our country, they were there, and that Church of England followed them over here, and they were killing them because they didn't want them coming over. You realize our country was started not to make a man dressed up like a woman a four-star admiral. Our country was started to come over here for freedom of religion. That's what it was about. Freedom of religion. Coming over here so you could worship the way you want to worship. That's how it's about. You know what? If you want to be a Baptist, you can be a Baptist. If you want to be a Catholic, you can be a Catholic. If you want to be a Muslim, you can be a Muslim. If you want to be fill in the blank, if you want to be an atheist, you can be an atheist. That's what America's about. America's a freedom of choice. You can do what you want to do. But you just watch. The way it started, they had to fight, and many of them gave their life in order for us to do what we're doing right now. And it could happen again. Because they're, they really like to take, it's amazing how they like to take freedoms away from people. I say, man, if you're not hurting somebody else, leave them alone. And you don't, everybody don't have to agree like us, but you ought to have a right to worship how you want to. That's the American way. It's the way it's supposed to be. But anyway, but Paul was a wicked guy for a while there. He was killing people. But he said, forgetting those things which are behind. What a Christian needs is a short memory. You say, well, I, before I got saved, I did this. Who cares what you did? Didn't the Lord forgive you? If he forgave you, forgive yourself and move on. It's over with. That's not you anymore. Get over it. But a lot of Christians are like the devil. They like to bring up the past of other people. The devil likes to do that. The old saying is, when the devil brings up your past, bring up his future. If his future doesn't look good. Ours looks really good. But I'm telling you, people like to do that. They say, well, I remember. Well, that, I had somebody one time years ago. They don't even go around here anymore. They said, well, that one lady, I, I can't believe you even let her come down there. Do you know what she used to do? I said, we're not interested in what she used to do. And I said, to be honest with you, she's at the right place. I said, what you ought to do is go back there and shake her hand and tell her you're glad she's here is what you ought to do. So, oh, she's terrible what she used to do. Well, let me tell you something. We don't care. All of us, 
had some problems in the past. Aren't you glad you're not what you used to be? And so don't worry about that. I mean, everybody was on their way to hell without the Lord, no matter who you are. Forgetting those things which are behind, which are behind we got to forget those things. And then verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If you're always looking back, you can't press forward. we got to keep going forward. Forget about what's behind you. What is done is done. Now move on and keep moving forward is what you got to do. Press, press toward the mark. I mean, that's, that's, that's going at it, pressing towards it. I, I watched those guys, those, uh, I used to watch those, um, those guys, those world's strongest men. I look about like Adam back there. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, you'll see them on there, and they'll be hooked up to uh, 747 or something. And, man, and they're, they're down there, and I mean, they're, they're, on, their, on, they're on their hands. And, I mean, they're, they're just giving everything they got. And I mean, they're pushing forward. That's what a Christian's got to do. We just got to keep on. It's a struggle sometimes. And there's a weight trying to pull you back. And you just got to keep pressing forward. Keep marching forward. Don't stop. Brother Tony Hudson got invited to be part of that. That metrics they tried to, three years in a row, they tried to sponsor him to be the world's strongest man. And he went, he's a preacher. He said, I can't go. He said, first they'd see me out there in Las Vegas looking like, he said, I couldn't do that. He said, I, I got revival meetings to preach. But when you squat 1,060 pounds, you get noticed. It's not just the way it is. You get noticed. Oh, me. I like it. His boy told him, he said, uh, Daddy, show me about some weightlifting. His boy, Troy, he brought him with him one time. Good old boy. And anyway, Troy was lifting, and he said, show me some techniques. And and he said, I bet I can lift more than you can. And, of course, he was in the 12th grade in high school just three or four years ago and slender and really good athlete. I mean, he got recruited for colleges as a safety or cornerback. What I mean, he, he was really highly recruited in a big, that big uh, school there outside of Nashville. And he was their starter and all that and probably all state and all those things. And, and he said, no, he said, you can't lift more than I can. He said, I bet I can. He said, put 300 pounds on there. Well, Brother Tony doesn't lift weights. He hasn't lifted weights in years. He's 55 to 60, somewhere in there, you know. And he, he put 300 pounds on there. He said, I'll just see if I can do it. And he racked it as a bench press. And he goes, <laughs> he said, no, you ain't doing more than me, son. And so <laughs> when you used to bench press 750, you know, I mean, you don't lose all that. So that's pretty good. <laughs> I got a friend in BB. And I went to college with, and I was talking to him the other day. We hadn't talked in years. And I said, how much you benching? And he's saying, my, he said, I can do 600 right now. I said, 600? He said, yeah. He said, I put 300 on there the other day and did it 41 times without stopping. 41 times. I bet I couldn't do it any. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you got to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. we got to keep moving forward. That's what we got to do. Then look in chapter 4, verse 13. There's so much here. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can makes the man. I can. 
That's a good attitude to have. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. If God gives us the strength, we can do it. This church has never seen the full potential of what God can do. Never seen it. We've seen some great things happen, but God can do so much more. So much more. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, he says. Uh, can't never did anything. Never did. You've got to keep on trying. And whatever Christ has for you to do, he's going to supply you the strength and the power to get it done. He always does. When I surrendered to the ministry to preach, and I, feel, I knew the Lord was calling me to preach, and I pray, began to pray, I said, Lord, if you don't help me, this ain't going to happen. I said, because you know I don't know what I'm doing. And if you don't, I mean, I didn't even like to speak in public. I, when they had speech day at school, I skipped. And I was just, I'm not getting involved in that. I mean, if you can forget it, I skipped those days. I didn't want any part of that. But anyway, I had to take oral communications in college. I hated every minute of that. And then you had to give speeches. And I was in college, and they had these impromptu speeches, the ones you don't get to study for. And our teacher had a bowl. And she said, whatever topic you pull out, that's what you have to talk about for 10 minutes. And it's my turn, and I don't like to talk in front of people. And I pull it out, and it said, prostitution. I go, you got to be kidding me. What? <laughs> what are the odds, you know? <laughs> What'd you, what'd I, say? I have no idea what I said. It's been a long time ago, but that's about my luck. All right. I can do all, now I don't have any fear. I've had people say, that, ask me, they say, do you get nervous talking for people? Never. As long as I know what I'm going to say. If I, have, if, I, if I had to get in front of people and didn't have anything to say or didn't have a message, that's when I get nervous. But if I've got a message, I don't get nervous. I don't care if, I don't care if, if I can preach in front of thousands, and I've done it, or hundreds, I'll do that on a weekly basis, or a small group, makes no difference. It doesn't bother me. I'll be honest with you. I'm more apt to get nervous if it's one or two people I was preaching to. If it's a really small, that's kind of awkward. But if you got folks, I mean, I was, the first time I preached in a jail, it was kind of awkward. And then... Um, I was, I was telling the Woodruff County Sheriff, I had lunch with him yesterday, and him and two more sheriffs, and, and I was telling him, I said, man, I used to preach in your jail years ago. I said, I was so nervous first time I went there. I'd never been in a jail and preached none of that stuff, and man, those guys were rough. And Anyway, I led this murderer to the Lord, and I mean, he was a terrible murderer, big old strong guy, mean, and he got to liking me. And so there he was, and the next week I came in there, and they put me in the day room. They just put me in the cell with them, and I mean, they left, locked it, you know, and there I am with them. And so I hope they like me, you know. I said, well, I'm here to preach again. And there's a man sitting on this um, picnic table made out of steel. He's sitting on the corner of it. He said, I'm watching TV. You're not preaching now. And there's a big TV up in the corner one of the old square TVs like they used to have, you know. And he'd had it, he turned it up. He said, you be quiet, I'm watching TV. And my murderer guy that I just led the Lord, he said, the preacher said he's preaching. Turn it off. And the guy got up off that and goes, click, and sat back down. <laughs> and I said, now, now, I got your attention here. <laughs> I may preach two hours if that's all right with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right 
All right, there's some truths from Philippians. Any questions or comments tonight? <laughs>